Cry forth the bare knuckle lollipop, you distant Vincents. Welcome to the Blind Boy Podcast. If you're a brand new listener, go back to an earlier podcast. Don't listen to this episode. We have a record amount of brand new listeners this week because this podcast was featured in the New York Times at the weekend. So if you're a brand new listener from the New York Times, don't listen to this episode. Go back to an earlier episode. You might be tempted to pick out an episode where I interview a celebrity. That's not really what this podcast is about. I do that occasionally. But this podcast for me, it's auto-fiction. I like to explore the podcast medium as a literary form through monologues that I write. So pick one of those episodes because this episode is an interview with the brilliant Sharon Lambert about Irish drug policy, which might interest you as a first-time listener. But really, this one is for regular listeners. So I'm so glad that the podcast was featured in the New York Times. I know I speak a lot about trying not to pay too much attention to external praise, but I'm going to allow myself to feel proud of that. Not an ego thing. To feel proud of it for moments in my career where I would have really beaten myself up. I've been professionally creative since I was fucking 17. I'm doing this a long time. I've had lots and lots of failures. TV pilots that never got off the ground, stuff that never got commissioned, scripts that got rejected. And in those times, I always thought, fuck it, will I give up? Maybe I'm not good enough, will I just give up? And these rejections would have always come from TV channels, we'll say, or radio stations, or whatever the fuck, we'll we'll say the industry. And when you try your best, and you work real hard at something, and you think that the thing that you've made is really good, and it still gets rejected by TV commissioners or radio commissioners or whatever, that's really tough. It's tough to maintain self-belief after enough of those things. And when I started this podcast in my bedroom, as it kind of moved along, my attitude became, fuck it, I don't need TV commissioners. I don't need commissioners to tell me what I'm doing is good or bad. Just fucking do it yourself. Do it yourself. Put it out independently. If people like it, ask them to fund it. Just do it yourself. And I did. And it got featured in the New York Times. Purely because of word of mouth. No advertising budget. Nothing. I just showed up each week with this podcast. Did what I wanted to do. Made sure that I'm passionate each week. That I care about what I'm making. That I have full creative control. And five years later, it got featured in the New York Times. And the reason that's important to me is because, let's just say it wasn't, this podcast wasn't an independent production. Let's just say this podcast was, I don't know, a little TV show I made on RTE or something I made for BBC. If something I made on one of those platforms ended up getting written about in the New York Times, which is one of the biggest newspapers in the world, If that ended up getting written about in the New York Times, that would be a huge deal. In the industry, that would be considered a massive deal. I'd be offered 10 TV commissions to do whatever the fuck I wanted. So I'm taking this bit of external praise on board. Not for my fucking ego. Not to consider myself better than anyone else or any bullshit like that. Just for younger versions of myself that was unnecessarily tough on myself. Just, there was no need to be that hard on yourself. Just because a pilot got rejected or a commissioner didn't like your idea, it doesn't mean 
that you need to give up and you're worthless and useless and everything was all an accident up to that point. It's not true. And also I want to thank all of ye because there'd be no fucking podcast if it wasn't for ye listening. If it wasn't for patrons who funded me and for people who just listen to the podcast and then say to their friend you should listen to this podcast I really like it so thanks to all of ye and I want to give a thank you to the journalist Rachel Connolly who profiled me because I've been a huge fan of Rachel's writing and her journalism for a few years now so I was so excited that she was the one who was going to be profiling me and also I'll give her a plug because Rachel has a book coming out her first novel coming out in August called Lazy City and I'm really looking forward to it because I've loved her journalism for ages and also her background is in science she studied science and um, I always welcome any novelist or writer who didn't study writing I'm not saying that's a bad thing but a huge amount of new writers that come out now they studied literature and sometimes it can feel a bit samey so I'm always excited by any writer of fiction who's coming at it from a different background something I want to address is in the New York Times piece they used my real name which I didn't know that was going to happen and loads of people on Instagram and Twitter people who listen to this podcast were really annoyed about that they were annoyed with the journalist and annoyed with the New York Times for printing my real name and I want to stress this shit just happens the journalist Rachel Connolly she was unbelievably sound supportive She didn't print my real name out of any type of malice. Neither did the New York Times. The fact is, like, I'm not anonymous. Like, to be anonymous means nobody knows who you are. It's not possible to be anonymous and also operate professionally. By which I mean earning a living from what you do. I do gigs, I earn a living. I pay taxes. I take out insurance at gigs and stuff. I'm a professional, this is how I earn a living. So there's no way to do that while being literally anonymous. That doesn't exist. So because of that, it's easy for journalists to find out your actual name. And my name has been in the public domain since the days of the fucking rubber bandits, years ago. So I'm not anonymous, what I am is private. So regarding the New York Times printing my name, no one actually did anything wrong or bad. It's just how it rolls sometimes. How I generally conduct interviews is I wear a plastic bag throughout the entire thing. I refer to myself only as blind boy throughout the entire thing. And I hope that that then translates into the article just calling me blind boy. But the other thing is with the media and with journalists, I can't go to a journalist. I can't say to a journalist, can you not print my real name? Because that's actually quite insulting to the profession of journalism. You can't go to a journalist and say, can you, this piece of publicly available information, can you pretend that doesn't exist, please? So I didn't ask for that. And I generally don't ask for that. The only time it's acceptable to ask for that is when it's part of a paid PR campaign. Like if I wanted to, I could be all over the newspapers and the radio next week. If I put aside a certain amount of money, give it to a PR company, and then that PR company is paying for me to be on the radio, on the TV, and in the newspaper. That happens all the time. Like if I have a gig coming up, like a big gig, 
and the promoter for this gig, like Aikens or whoever, when I do Vicar Street, Aikens might have money for PR and then they get me in the paper and it might look like an interview, but really it's just an ad for a gig. That's all it is, even though it looks like an interview. In those situations, you can actually say to the journalist, we're paying for this here, so don't use his real name. They can still tell you to fuck off, but the rules are different when it's PR. This New York Times thing wasn't that. This was, the New York Times would like to do a profile on your podcast, which is an honour because that's the shit that you have to earn. But it also means the ball isn't really in my court to be asking, don't print my real name. So usually what I do, I just wear the bag throughout, call myself blind by throughout. In Ireland, most journalists go, he's blind by, let's just call him blind by. Like if it was Sting, I'd call him Sting or Bono. But with this article, it's the New York Times. I'm not big enough. They're doing an article for an audience who've never heard of me going, there's a podcaster over in Ireland who wears a plastic bag on his head and he calls himself blind by. So we're going to put his real name in there. And that's just an editorial decision. Obviously, I'm not happy with that because I prefer the most amount of privacy that I can get. But no one did anything bad. This is just what happens sometimes. And the reason I'm saying it is because I saw a small amount of people coming to my defence online and going to directly to the journalist Rachel Connolly as if she had done something malicious or tried to dox me. No, that's not the case. Even if she had wanted to not print my name, the editorial policy of the newspaper might have overruled that. So I'm saying that say it's grand. Don't worry about it, it's fine. And please don't take up issue with the journalist because she's someone I admire and respect. My actual name has been out there for years and I, I wouldn't be able to hide it anyway the second I start, like, earning money. Not in Ireland anyway. I'd know how the fuck Banksy does it. And I know some of you are listening and you don't have to read the New York Times article. You don't have to read the New York Times article. Don't show me the hand that goes up Carmel the Frog's arse. I don't ever want to see that hand, you're thinking. Like, I was talking to a man, a man in his 50s recently and I was working with him and we have this, this puppet in Ireland called Dustin the Turkey. He's a talking turkey from Dublin. He's like a national treasure. But he's Dustin. He's Dustin. He's a puppet, but he's not a puppet. He's fucking Dustin and he's a talking turkey. And this man in his 50s who I was talking to, he, he had worked at a live gig a few years back with Dustin the turkey. And he wasn't even a fan of Dustin the turkey. And one day, he walked backstage into the dressing room and what did he see? Dustin's limp body being stuffed into a suitcase. And it broke his heart. And he didn't even like Dustin. It killed him. He couldn't believe that Dustin was a puppet. He spoke to me about it like he'd seen a war crime. So I understand for loads of years, you're like, No, Blind Boy's not a real person. There's a man in Limerick called Blind Boy with a plastic bag in his head and once a week I listen to him and that's it. Shut the fuck up. And that's fair enough. I remember when I was a child, actually. Dustin the turkey. This national treasure turkey that we have. This puppet. The puppet. When I was a child of about four, the Dustin the turkey puppet used to be on TV. He had like a testicular flap of skin that used to dangle from his beak. And when I was a child, I used to get a gag reflex when I saw it. I'd get a gag reflex when he came on TV. And my ma used to have to pull me away from the television in case I puked on the carpet. And then they removed the testicular flap of skin from his beak and then I was okay with dusting the turkey. So now I'm going to expand upon, because I have to do this about once a year on the podcast for new listeners or whatever, who are wondering, why am I even talking about this? 
or asking, why do you wear a plastic bag in your head and call yourself blind boy anyway? Why can't you just take the bag off and just use your normal name? Is it not easier? So let me just speak about fame. Now, anytime I say that, I'd like to speak about fame. I get a little bit embarrassed because it sounds like I think I'm way more famous than I am. I'm under no fucking illusions about how famous I am. I have what I like to call interrupting your carvery fame. By which I mean, if you're out on a Sunday having a nice carvery lunch with your family, you've got your roast spuds and your roast beef and your gravy and you're there with your brother, your sister, your ma, you're having a lovely Sunday carvery dinner and then I walk past and you stop eating your carvery dinner, you look up slightly, go to your sister or brother and say, that's your man there, um, he'd a song about a horse or something and he's mentally ill, is it? I don't know. Yeah, fuck it, that's mad, I didn't think. And then you get back to your carvery lunch and that's it. That's how famous I am. And then maybe after 20 minutes, when most people at the carvery have done that, just simply paused their roast beef, looked up and acknowledged, maybe after 20 minutes, two people might come up to me and say, can I have a selfie? I don't really know who the fuck you are, to be honest, and I'm not that familiar with your work, but someone said you're you're kind of famous, so can I get a selfie just in case? That's how famous I am. Pathetic, cringe, Irish fame. But I don't have to deal with that. I don't have to deal with that, because I wear a plastic bag in my head. So do you know what I do? I walk into the carvery, no one knows who the fuck I am. I sit down, get my carvery lunch like a normal person, and if I talk to anybody, It's because I know I'm in real life. And my plastic bag protects me from that. Then you've got real fame. Then you've got Paul Meskel fame. Paul Meskel walks into a carvery. The carvery has to be shut down. Paul Meskel is here. Paul Meskel. Everyone's ringing their friends. Now everybody's dinner is ruined because Paul Meskel is here and no one's able to eat their dinner. So what does Paul Meskel do? Poor old Paul Meskel can't get any fucking carveries. Paul Meskel, if he wants a carvery, has to go for wherever famous people eat carveries. So now Paul Meskel is in the really expensive famous person carvery lunch place in London, which I'm sure exists. And no one gives a fuck who he is because everyone's famous. But then Bob Dylan walks in. And Bob Dylan is so famous that he's even famous amongst famous people. And and this is actually from a real Dylan quote. Because Dylan is... Dylan is... is making Barack Obama and Joe Biden uncomfortable famous. That's how famous Bob Dylan is. But Bob Dylan said that the loneliest thing at his level of fame is that even when he goes to the place with famous people and like Jack Nicholson could be there, fucking Helen Mirren, Martin Scorsese, Dylan is so famous that even in those places, he says everyone eats their dinner differently. Everyone eats Martin Scorsese eats his dinner a little bit differently when Bob Dylan is in the room. So I'm under no illusions. I know what my fame level is. Disturbing your fucking carvery in Tarlis at a pub fame. Or fucking being in Aldi and you see me and go, I don't know what the fuck he is or what he does. I think he's half famous. I'm going to move closer to him so I can see what type of deodorant he's buying. Out of curiosity. And I might take a photograph of it. So my plastic bag... And my name, Blind by Ball Club, it gives me privacy. Privacy. Not anonymity, 
privacy. The other thing with me, I literally do not give a fuck about fame. Now the thing is, that can sound like I'm trying to be mad cool. Oh, I don't give a shit about that. I'm so cool, I don't give a shit about fame. No, literally, I give so little of a fuck about fame that that position is one of the things that got me diagnosed as autistic. You see, it's actually normal. It's a normal thing. Like when I just said there, I go into a carvery and I might disturb a few people's dinners. Most people would go, so what? What's so wrong with that? Why do you need to avoid that? Would, would you not actually like that? Is that not nice? It's, it's normal. It's a normal position to want to walk into a restaurant and for everybody to look up and go, there's that guy. And for people to look up to you and for strangers to hold you in esteem because they've seen you on TV or something. That's actually a normal thing to want. Like not only is it a normal thing to want, our culture is built around it. Fucking reality TV, influencers, Instagram. To achieve fame, no matter what the level, simply for strangers to know who the fuck you are and to pay attention. This is normal to want that. And when I say normal, what I mean is within neurotypical society, this is quite neurotypical behaviour, these, these hierarchies of people. When you're neurodivergent, in particular on the autistic spectrum, the part of my brain that should be excited by that amount of attention, it's not there. I don't really have that. I don't instinctively respond to social hierarchy. I can see social hierarchy, I observe it, I witness it, but the little kick of endorphins that you'd get when a famous person walks into the room. I don't get that. Similarly, the kick of endorphins, like when I have my bag on, so when I put my plastic bag on and then I walk into a room of people and everyone there goes, oh my God, it's blind boy. And everyone's body language changes and people look at me differently. I don't really respond to that as positive input. It's quite, it's, it's more stressful than anything. And I certainly don't go, this is great, I fucking love this, this is amazing. I go, oh, okay, I'm in the room now and the bag is on my head and everyone knows who I am and a bunch of people are going to come up and talk to me and that's absolutely fine and I'm going to have loads of fun while I'm doing this but I'm really glad that I can take this bag off, walk back into the room and no one knows who the fuck I am. I'm really glad that I have that because really what I'd like to do is to be kind of on my own, to be nice and quiet and to speak to a small amount of people and when I speak to this small amount of people, I want to, I want to speak about things I care about. I want to speak about ideas with this person, not necessarily small talk, which can be a bit difficult for me. And the thing is with not seeing social hierarchies, if you're neurodivergent, it can be a blessing, but it can also be quite negative. For instance, if I worked in a company, let's just say I had a, a regular office job and I worked in a company, and there's hierarchies within that company. You've got uh, your team leader, middle management, and then you've got the fucking boss. I can see that that hierarchy exists, but I'm liable to walk up to the boss, the top person, just to walk up to them and start talking about the history of door handles. And I won't change my body language, my tone. I won't speak to that person the way that you're supposed to speak to a person who's above you. I'll speak to him with human respect. 
and empathy because I'm a, I'm a nice person. I'm a decent human being. But I, I won't engage in the game of speaking to someone who's senior to you. Now that can go, that can be good and bad. If this person really wants to be spoken up to, if they need people to be subordinate to them, to speak to them in a certain way because they have seniority, and I don't do that, then they're going, who's this cheeky fucker? Who's this little shit who thinks he can just walk up to me, the boss, and start talking about the history of door handles? That shit will get you in a lot of trouble. And it got me in a lot of trouble in school. Or sometimes it can actually go quite well for you. That boss might have a bit of humility about them. And they may not actually like the fact that people lick their arse. Or that people speak up to them. Or present themselves as subordinate. They might not actually like that. And when someone speaks to them as an equal, as a human being, they respect that. Some people are like that. Like in my current job, sometimes that's an advantage to me. I'll give you an example. Like Graham Norton was a guest on my podcast about two years ago. Now he's really famous. Graham Norton is really, really famous. And he interviews really, really famous people. And Graham Norton didn't really need to come on my fucking podcast. He didn't really need that. He's more famous than needing to come onto my podcast to promote his book or whatever he was doing at the time. Graham Norton came onto this podcast because he wanted to. And the reason was, is I was at some party about four years ago. So I'm with the same agency in London as Graham Norton. So I was at a party for my agency. It was a Christmas party, which meant that some of the clients, I'm a client, and then like all the agents, we were just there having drinks, eating sausage rolls in this big function room. And then Graham Norton comes in. And then everything changes. It's like, oh my God, Graham Norton is here. Fuck me. He's so famous. I didn't think he'd even show up to this party. Wow. And now the whole room is different because Graham Norton is here. Now I'm there at the party. I don't have a bag on my head. Now I know who Graham Norton is. I know that Graham Norton is mad famous. I understand all of this, obviously. But what doesn't happen to me is I don't instinctually I don't get a rush of endorphins by his Graham Norton-ness. I, I, I don't change how I eat my sausage roll because Graham Norton is in the room. So I ended up just... I don't know, I walked up to him and spoke about the history of Protestants in Cork. And we ended up having a wonderful, lovely conversation and had great crack. And then we ended up like hanging out the whole night, just talking and having, because he's a lovely man. Other people then started asking around the room, who the fuck is that guy talking to Graham Norton? He must be somebody. It's like, no, I'm nobody. The thing is, Graham Norton's an actual decent person. And the fact that I just walked up talking to him as a, a lad called Graham from West Cork and that I wasn't, my eyes didn't agape because of his Graham Norton-ness and I just spoke to him like a human being. We had a lovely night. And then when it came to me asking him, here, Graham, will you be on my podcast? Even though you don't fucking need to be, you don't need to do this at all. He was like, absolutely, of course I would. I love I loved chatting with you. So that there is an example of how, we'd say, my neurodivergence and not seeing social hierarchies can be beneficial to me. I could have walked up to some other famous person. I could list out a couple. I won't do it. I could list out a couple of real famous people who I went up and spoke to about the history of door handles or whatever and I got a media cold shoulder. 
Who the fuck are you that you think you can walk up and talk to me? Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? You can't just walk up and talk to me. I'm mad important. So some people really like this. They like these hierarchies. Other people are like, this is part of my job and I, I don't really like it when people treat me differently. So why am I talking about this? I, yeah, I literally don't. I literally don't want notoriety or fame. Not on a, not on an emotional level is what I mean. I don't emotionally need it. I don't get endorphins or a positive kick when it happens. Notoriety and fame for me are a consequence of my job. What I want is to make art that I really care about. I'm driven 100% by the work. I fucking adore writing. I adore making this podcast. That's what drives me 24 fucking 7. I love it. And the only way I can do that all the time is that if that's my job, if that's how I earn a living. The thing is, the only way to, to earn a living from that is if you put your creativity out there in the form of art, in whatever form it takes, you got to put it out for public consumption in, in the sphere of entertainment. And... A consequence of that is you get notoriety. And I also understand notoriety is something I need in order to keep doing the job. So regarding, we'll say this getting featured in the New York Times. Like, do I get a big kick of endorphins from that? Do I get the feeling of, oh my God, I feel amazing. I feel on top of the world. I can't believe I'm in the New York Times. Goodness me. Genuinely, no. It, it, it's not a feeling. It's much more of a a cognitive thing. Getting featured in the New York Times for me, really what it comes down to is, A, I recognise that, yes, it is an achievement. B, for me, it it just means more listeners. It means that loads of people in America have read this article. A small percentage of them are now going to check out this podcast. And now that's more people who will listen to this tell their friends and that means more time for me to do this as my full-time job so that ultimately I can keep going I can keep going creating every single day and if I need to think about the history of door handles for three days solid I have the time and space to turn that into a piece of writing that I can put out as a podcast that's what it means to me that's why that's important And then the people close to me, my family, they're going to be the ones who'll have to come to me and go, wow, this is this is a really big deal. The New York Times have featured your podcast that that's huge. Would you not have some celebratory drinks? Would you not celebrate that? How do you feel? Do you not feel amazing? And the truth is, no, I don't feel it. I don't I don't have such an endorphin kick that I then translate that into needing to have celebratory drinks. You're going to have to remind me to do that one. My endorphins will kick in when I start thinking about the history of door handles. I actually don't know anything about the history of door handles other than a little voice inside me is saying, well, you've mentioned it four times now in this podcast, so I probably am going to start looking at the history of door handles because I guarantee you, I guarantee you there's something mad interesting in the history of door handles. There has to be. There has to be. And I'm glad that that's my job. Because if I was working in, in, like I said, an office where my job has nothing to do with door handles, 
I don't think I'd be able to switch off the thinking about door handles part of myself because that's where my joy is. That's where my fun is. That's what drives me. Not being held in high esteem by loads of people. Instead, that's something I recognise as being quite important so that I can do my job. This is why the fuck I have a bag in my head. This is why I wear a bag on my head. So that I can live a nice, quiet, normal life and focus only on the work and exercise boundaries around my privacy and the spectacle of fame. Because here's the thing with fame or notoriety, it's a fucking spectacle. And when I have the plastic bag, that's the spectacle. I get to hold up that plastic bag and go, that's the bit that's famous. And what I mean by that is, do you ever see like the voice actors for The Simpsons? The human beings who do Bart Simpson's voice or Homer's voice and you see him on a talk show. And you look at them talking and it's like, I can hear Homer Simpson. I can hear Lisa Simpson. But I don't know who the fuck you people are. And it feels strange. It feels odd. It feels discordant. That's because the spectacle of fame isn't those people. It's their voices. But the spectacle of the fame, the thing that we idolise and look up to, that's a yellow cartoon. So by having this plastic bag on my head, That's the spectacle. That is the spectacle. That's where the fame is. And when the bag is off, I'm fucking nobody. I'm no one. And that's how I want it. It's how I like it. And it's very, very, very important to my mental health and my emotional resilience. Or else I just give the whole thing up and go and work in in a job that doesn't provide me with meaning and that doesn't fulfill my curiosity to escape all that. And I'd rather not do that I love my fucking job. I love this so much. I don't think I'm ever going to stop being creative. Profession- I'm never going to stop being creative. But I just, I, I, want to, I want creativity to be what I do for a living. And I accept that notoriety sometimes is a consequence of that. And I like to control my privacy around those consequences. And this makes some people really angry. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be on fucking TV and then expect people to not know who you are. You can't do this. But here's the fact. My plastic bag doesn't help my fucking career. It hinders my career. It's ridiculous. It's stupid. Most media don't know what to do with me. Is he serious or is he taking the piss? Why does he have that stupid bag on but yet he's talking about serious things? I don't know what this is. I don't know how to categorise this. I don't like it. And in my job... I regularly don't get opportunities in my job because of this fucking bag. Like, I don't know, presenting a documentary about art history. Like a big documentary about art history. The paintings of Caravaggio. The people making these documentaries, the channels that are commissioning them, they go through their list of people and they go, how many entertainers here do we have who are actually academically qualified in art history? And also are able to present TV and be funny. There's only a small list of people. And my name comes up every single time. They're not giving me that job. They're not going to do a big budget art history documentary with some cunt who's got a bag in his head. They want this to be epic. They want this to be serious, to be solemn. The bag is a distraction. So for people who are saying he can't have his cake and eat it too. I'd be doing a lot better in my chosen profession. If I didn't insist on wearing a plastic bag on my head at all times. Even my book company are like, we're really trying to get people to take you seriously as a, as a short story writer. 
You see, you're writing these stories and you're asking people to take the stories seriously, but you happen to have a fucking plastic bag in your head at the same time and this is quite difficult. This is quite difficult to sell to critics. Any chance you'd wear a more formal mask? Or take it off altogether, there's some seagulls. It's that time of the evening where this, yeah, it's, it's late evening here in Limerick and the seagulls are having a little roar. That means there's a storm coming. Look, I love, I love, I love creating art. I love it so much. I love doing this job. I just want to go to Aldi and I don't want to have a car full of people driving past and screaming out of the window and giving me the fright of my life because they recognise me from an internet clip. And I'm going to keep trying to maintain that balance for as long as I can. And the way you do it is by controlling the spectacle and, and maintaining that boundary of privacy. Like some fucking podcasters are, are reality TV stars. They just let the media 100% into their entire lives. They'd be there posting on Instagram about a new kitchen that they got. They let every single thing about their lives becomes part of the spectacle and part of the entertainment. And then that means that the, it's a free-for-all for the media and for people online to comment about every aspect of their life. You gotta be built for that shit. Those people are built for this shit. This is what they're doing. They crave and actively enjoy that type of attention. They, they really love it. And I'm not criticising them. If that's what they love and that's what gives them a sense of meaning, fair fucking play to them. Not everyone wants that. Not everyone likes it. And regarding my name going into a fucking newspaper, I don't give a shit about that. That's Bart Simpson's voice with no face. But what I don't like and what I would actively fight against is... The media trying to take photographs of me without my fucking bag because to publish that and to make the spectacle of my notoriety, my human face, that would cause me real life harm. If you're thinking, really, come on, so what? Some people see you out in public and they recognise you. So what? That's grand for you. I'm neurodivergent, different set of rules. And if I say I don't want to willingly put myself in a situation where I'm going to be recognised in public when I'm trying to live my, my normal routine-based life, if I request that and set those boundaries, I think it's only fair for it to be respected. If influencers are like, here's every single detail of my private life for you to comment on and to write articles on and it's going to bring me sponsorships and attention, that's a contract that they're engaging in there with the media. But if someone else says, no, none of that, that's also a contract that has to be respected. And I'm recording all of this. What date is it? It's Saturday the... Saturday the 22nd. It's last Saturday. You're listening to this on Wednesday. And I'm pre-recording this because I'm going to Canada. I have two gigs in Canada. So I'm pre-recording this on Saturday. And I know that on Monday morning, because Sunday is a slow day for the news, on Monday fucking morning, my phone is going to be hopping with all the radio stations and newspapers going... Blind boy, would you come on for about five minutes and talk about the New York Times uh, mentioning your real name and, and explain to people why you wear the bag in your head? No. And even better, when they're doing all those fucking phone calls, I'm going to be in an airplane. I'm going to be above the Atlantic Ocean on the way to a different country to do my gigs. So thank fuck. Because I saw one of the tabloids already commenting on it, commenting on that thing within the New York Times. My real name being used. They published an article about it, so I, I know that by Monday, I know the radio stations and the newspapers that are going to try and contact me. So, 
I'm going to be in an airplane. Not answering my phone. And anything I'm saying about it, I'm saying on this week's podcast, which is going out on Wednesday. And I don't want to sound in any way ungrateful at all. It's, I'm so fucking happy to have been featured in the New York Times. And so happy for all of ye for making that possible. It means the absolute world to me. It's just the reason that that means the world to me is different to how it is expected of me to be excited about it. The reason I'm saying that is that tabloid who reported on me having an issue with my real name being in the or the New York Times, there was a tone to it and I knew that the tone that they were posting was ungrateful little shit uh, is in the New York Times and he has a problem that they printed his name. And that's a common thing I see. Some people are real angry with me for having a plastic bag in my head. And that anger, sometimes it stems from a jealousy. They're not jealous of me, but some people can be like, you have, you have that thing that I want. I'd love recognition. I'd love to be in the paper. You have that. And, and you don't want it. And this makes me angry. You're ungrateful. I'm not ungrateful. I'm unbelievably happy and appreciative. I'm grateful that my work is in the New York Times. My work is in there. I'm okay to want my work in the New York Times, but also not want me, my name, because me didn't do anything. So if you're getting annoyed with a person because they want to try and maintain privacy while still putting work out publicly, just don't assume everyone is neurotypical. I understand some people would really, really, really love notoriety of any description. Some people don't. Some people legitimately, genuinely don't. And I'm one of those people. I think people who want fame are mad. Like I think people who want fame and notoriety are fucking mad. Like imagine neurodivergent people made the rules of society and not neurotypical people. So you live in a society and most people are neurodivergent. The people who want fame are then the mad ones. Imagine I was a psychiatrist and I'm like, all right, okay, you were at a carvery, was it? Okay, and you saw Paul Meskel. And what did you do when you saw Paul Meskel? You went up and asked Paul Meskel for a photograph. Why did you do that? Because Paul Meskel's famous, you really admire and look up to him and you found yourself getting uncontrollably excited when you saw Paul Meskel. And why did you want a photograph with him? To sh- you wanted a photograph with Paul Meskel to put on your Instagram to show other people because this then would increase your status within a hierarchy in the eyes of other people, yeah? I'm going to diagnose you now with l- level one neurotypical disorder. Oh, you've put yourself in debt because you've purchased a BMW that you couldn't afford. Why did you Why did you spend 80 grand on that BMW when you can't really afford it and get that huge loan from the bank? You'd like your neighbours to see the BMW and to think more highly of you within this structure and status. There's, there's You see a hierarchy of people and you'd like to be at the top of that and owning a new BMW communicates higher status to your neighbours. Is that it? But now you've put yourself in debt. Wow. I can see that creating a lot of stress in your life. I'm going to diagnose you with level one neurotypical disorder and you're going to need a lot of support because you seem to think that the world revolves around different hierarchies of people and you must compete within that. And just taking it back to when you met Paul Meskel there in the Carvery, what did you speak to him about? 
or you don't remember because you got really, really excited. You felt a rush of emotion because you were beside a famous person and you couldn't speak properly because of this rush of emotion. And were there no door handles to talk about, no? You didn't speak to Paul Meskel about the history of door handles. And how many door handles were in the room? Are you interested in the history of door handles? Not at all. That's strange because what's normal in this society is to be very, very, very interested in the history of door handles for no reason. And to see Paul Meskel as just a human being called Paul who's in things that are on TV. I can see how difficult it would be for neurotypical people like you to live in this neurodivergent society. I'm just doing a little thought experiment there. Me explaining to a fucking psychologist how little I care about fame or social hierarchies got me diagnosed with autism. Autism, neurodivergence, it's just a different type of brain. That's all it is, a different type of brain. And if neurodivergent people were the, ma- were the majority, something like a carvery needing to be shut down because Paul Meskel walks in, that would be considered mad. That would be considered too far. But it's not. It's not. It's actually quite acceptable to become extremely overstimulated in the presence of famous people or when access to fame might even be in discussion. It's also completely normal to buy a fucking car for a hundred grand even if it puts you in debt, to impress your neighbours and maintain some type of social hierarchy. That's all normal stuff. Doesn't look normal to me, that looks insane. My brain doesn't reward me for that stuff. I don't get rewards in my brain for that stuff. I get rewards. My brain gives me rewards when I think about, I bet you the history of door handles would be really interesting if I looked into it. Or, I don't know, the fucking guitar solos of Frank Zappa. That's what that's that's what gives me rewards. I hope all this. That's a rather extravagant explanation. That's my yearly explanation as to why I wear a plastic bag in my head. My yearly explanation, and I hope that one made sense. It's time now for an ocarina pause. That was forty fucking minutes. It's time now for an ocarina pause before I get onto part two of the podcast, which is a conversation about drugs laws in Ireland with Dr. Sharon Lambert who's a psychologist who works in trauma. So that's in part two. I'm going to... Here's the shaker pause. And you're going to hear an advert for something. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. That was the Shaker Pause. Support for this podcast comes from you, the listener, via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind by podcast. 
If you enjoy this podcast, if it brings you solace, joy, mirth, distraction, entertainment, whatever reason it is that you come and listen to this podcast, please consider paying me for the work that I'm doing. This is my full-time job. This is how I earn a living. I adore doing this job. I absolutely love it. But if you enjoy the fruits of that work, if you consume this podcast regularly, please consider paying me for it. But you might be fucking skint. You might be skint. So do you know what? You don't have to pay me. You can listen for free. Because the person who is paying me is paying for you to listen for free. So everybody gets a podcast. I get to earn a living. And it's a wonderful model based on kindness and soundness. Also, it keeps this podcast fully independent. I'm not beholden to any advertisers. No one can adjust or change the content that I make. I don't even make content to try and get listens or try and get attention. I don't even have to do that. I I make what I care about. So support, support all independent podcasts. And support doesn't have to be monetary. Leave a review, tell a friend, word of mouth. Share the podcast on your social media. You know the crack. Have I gigs to promote? I'm not going to promote gigs this week. I'm technically in Toronto right now, which means it's too late to talk about those gigs. And I don't, I don't, let's just not promote gigs this week. That's grand, I can do it next week. So, second part of the podcast. In Ireland, we have, we have drugs laws that centre around criminalisation. We have quite outdated drugs legislation in this country that actively harms people and criminalises people. We don't have a health-based approach to drugs in this country, whether that be cannabis or opiates. So in Ireland, what we're having at the moment is what's called the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs. I'll try and explain this as simply as possible. Imagine it's like, like jury duty, except it's about drugs. It's like they try and get a group of people that represent everybody in Ireland and then present to them evidence and questions and findings and expert witnesses about drugs and then this Citizens' Assembly deliver a report to go, having heard the evidence, we think that drugs should be legalised in Ireland or we think it should stay the same and all drugs should be criminalised. The findings of this Citizens' Assembly is brought to the government and to the legislators and then technically the government would go okay well the citizens assembly said that cannabis should be completely legal but maybe heroin should be illegal and then technically the government should go well then let's make that happen then we had a citizens assembly we listened to the people let's do that so if that's what people want technically that's how how it should work so this citizens assembly is happening right now it's incredibly important for the future of of drug laws in Ireland. Obviously, I would like to see sensible drug laws that are informed by a health-led approach, something that prioritises safety and is caring, rather than just fucking everyone in jail and calling them criminals. So I've brought onto the podcast Dr. Sharon Lambert, who's been a guest on this podcast, I think twice, maybe three times so far. Sharon is a psychologist, she's a researcher, She works in the areas of trauma, drug use, homelessness. She is an expert on the impact of drugs 
on Irish society and she was asked to speak before the Citizens' Assembly last week, the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs. So I'm going to speak to Sharon now about what was it like being asked to speak for the Citizens' Assembly and to give her really informed, research-based findings and opinions on, on drugs in Ireland and on drug use. So here we go. Here's the chat with Sharon Lambert. So Sharon, you were asked to speak before the Citizens' Assembly, which is a, that's a huge deal. It's a massive deal. Before I even ask you about it, how did you feel being asked to speak at the Citizens' Assembly? Ah, God, actually, I had two feelings. The first was, obviously, that, you know, you've just said it, there's a huge weight attached to it. Yeah. Because I have worked, not, obviously, I work in a university now and a lot of my research is on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm deeply kind of connected to it and it's really important to me. But before I worked in a university, I did work in a lot of different community settings. So people know that I worked in an addiction service, but maybe yeah. people don't know that before I ever be, you know, became a psychologist, I was actually a youth worker and I was a community worker. So yeah. um, this is something I've been hoping for for a very long time. So it was a really big deal to be asked and it felt like it was a huge weight because I didn't want to let anybody down. But another feeling that I had before I went was I was nervous about that, but I was also nervous about trust in the process. And, and just, I'm going to say to the listeners that this, because there's people outside of Ireland, the Citizens' Assembly is, it's it's an assembly on, on drugs that engages citizens to discuss drug policy with the hope of potentially changing some laws in Ireland around drugs. And that's what the Citizens' Assembly is. And we did it before with the the referendum to re- repeal the eight with abortion. There was a Citizens' Assembly before that. So a lot of people are very hopeful that here's our chance. Here's the chance to be heard for a wide group of people to say, we want change in drugs legislation. And then from the government and the legislators to listen and actually change it. But that's what the Citizens' Assembly is. So you were there, as you said, all day listening to what was happening at this uh, assembly. What were your thoughts there? Yeah, so so the Citizens' Assembly, like as you've said, we've had had some before. The other one we had, of course, which was a quite a historic outcome, was the the marriage equality referendum. Of course, yeah. And you know, so so you have gay marriage in Ireland now, and uh, we were the first. So that, that there are loads of countries that have that. Mm-hmm. We are we were the first country where it was the citizens of Ireland who decided that, as opposed to you know, somebody coming along and saying, you know, this is what we're doing. So that's the, the whole thing. So, there, you know, so I suppose with the Citizens Assembly, one of the things about it is like, oh, it's kind of a bit cynical because I was saying, you know, they pick these hot topics yeah. that they don't want to make the decision themselves because, yeah. you know, it might impact on who's going to vote for me the next time. So there's a little bit of me kind of going, mm, I don't know, why don't you just make evidence-based decisions and get on with it? And this has been your work. as well. the, the other thing I was thinking too, from your point of view, this has been your work for years. And now it's like, here's your opportunity to actually be heard and go, this is what I've done in my work. This is what I've seen. I've seen the impact of... Uh, legislation on drugs on human beings and this is what I have to say I was never more nervous about anything I have done professionally than speaking at the Citizens Assembly because I will never have a bigger opportunity 
to make impact on policy? I do research all of the time and sometimes people read it and sometimes they don't, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a bit of a dose. I'm always complaining on, on the media and stuff as well about policies not being evidence-based. But, you know, this was a, such a huge opportunity. So I really wanted it to be great. Um, mm -hmm. But I was really nervous because, you know, sometimes when there are different aspects of the state that I have interacted with where I have felt disappointed afterwards and I said, you know, I'm really nervous about this. So... I wasn't speaking until the afternoon, but I had the opportunity to be there all day. And I, I, I took that because there have been other citizens assemblies and I'm aware of them, but I didn't really understand the mechanics. And mm -hmm. I thought, I really need to know how this is working. So um, this is our third time doing a, a podcast. And I actually turned up with notes today. I normally just wrap up in the and me docs, right? But I want to get this right because it's really important because yeah. I was very, you know, I had a bit of skepticism. Like I have a fear. My fear is that maybe the Citizens Assembly is is performative. It may it oh, make yeah. us feel as if oh they're talking about change, but it's like are you gonna fucking actually change now after the assembly? Well, mine was, you know, who's going to have the ability to speak? That was what yeah. mine was about, and what voices are heard and things like that. So, so they were the things I was worried about. So, I. In terms of, I'm going to bore people now, but I'm just so excited about the actual process. So um, 99 people, uh, members of the public are invited to participate in the Citizens Assembly. And yeah. you have these, and, and, you know, I hope they won't be insulted, but they're, they're kind of like statistical policy geeks. Like they get really excited about um, how do you get 99 people that represent yeah, the population? Yeah, I'd love to know that. So they, you know, they go, well, 50% of the population are women, 50% are men. And, um, you know, then you have other people who, who might be non-binary or transgender. So you look at all of that and you say, right, you know, you need this. Then you have urban, rural, you have people with disabilities, you have people from ethnic minority groups, such as members of the traveling community. And um, then you have people who have positions on this issue. So you have people who would be very strongly you know, in favour of, of decriminalisation and legalisation. Then you have people who say, oh my God, don't even go there. That sounds terrifying. And then you have people who go, yeah, I don't really know anyone who's taken drugs and I don't know anything about it. So you could have some some lad called Declan who drives a bus, who's never even yes. seen a joint. And now yeah. all of a sudden they're asking him about drugs. Yeah. Wow. So So what they want to do is they want to say, this is, we need to have people who represent the citizens of Ireland. The things I'm, I'm going to go straight into the things that I was worried about before I went. Okay. You know, things like, you know, blind boy turns up and he says, uh, everyone who uses cannabis ends up with a mental health problem and it's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, you know, as you know, because you know a lot about it, you know, there's loads of nuance about that. So I was saying, yeah. what if somebody comes in and they say something like that? Something inflammatory. Yeah, you know, what's it? And, and maybe he, you know, maybe you wrap it up in a few statistics as well to make it look, you know, really, because you can, yeah. you know, any study that I look at in, in relation to drug use, I can take statistics out of that Completely. and I can present it in a whole range of ways. So, I mean, Sharon, very easily, I, within two sentences, I can present alcohol as something that utterly destroys your life or I can present alcohol as something that gives you a good night. Yeah, so that, Very that worried me that, you know, how do you get the nuance of it's not as simple as this. When you had your opportunity to speak, what points did you raise? Because like, 
you're trauma informed, you're someone who's worked in services, you'd have a view on drugs that'd be similar to mine. Like I'm quite, I, I like the Portuguese model, for instance, or something similar to it. Like, what, what points did you bring to the assembly? So I was on a panel discussion. Um, it was hosted by Dervin MacDonald. It, it was called a fireside chat, which was interesting mm-hmm. because in every other citizens assembly that has gone in the past, what you've always had is people coming in doing pres- a, a person's presentation and yeah. they do a presentation. They'd never done anything like this before. But that sounds and like a podcast. That sounds lovely. That sounds conversational. It was conversational. And the reason why they did that was because the the morning was all about the statistics. You know, here's okay. the statistics at a European level, at an Irish level. And bearing in mind that you have such a mix of people in the room, you have to start off at the beginning. Mm-hmm. This is what drugs are. These are the different types that are available. Wow. Okay. These are why people do it. So, you know, there was a lot of heavy information. So we talked about, you know, trauma and poverty and, and the things that lead to, to dependence. So... 90% of people who who use drugs don't end up in, in difficulty. But then you yeah. have this 10% who do. And, and for them, um, life can be extremely painful and chaotic. And it, it can be extremely, it's extremely difficult for their families and their communities. So I suppose some time was spent on that. And there could be some criticism as to, well, you know, you're talking about 10%, Sharon, where's the rest of us, the yeah. ones who like to sit at home in our pajamas on a Friday night and, and you know, consume cannabis and eat a yeah. bag of Maltesers. So so that will come. There will be, you know, a lived experience session, which is the, the next session in, in May, which will cover everybody. And, you know, I mean, are you going to get someone going... I took acid and it changed my life. Like it, it, that type of lived experience. Are you going to get someone like, like the pe- people who, I, I had great crack with MDMA. Uh, cannabis is wonderful for my experience of living. Like are these, will these people speak and get to speak on that level? My understanding is, is that every aspect of, of taking drugs is going to be discussed at this assembly, not just. So there'll be someone going, I also, I get terrible anxiety from cannabis and this doesn't suit me at all. And I wish I never did it. There will be. So, so what was discussed was the fact that people use drugs and that some people use drugs and have a positive, it has a positive mm-hmm. uh, feeling for them. Some people use drugs and it ends up with negative consequences for them. And all of those voices are going to be represented at the wow. assembly. So, so perhaps maybe people who were watching our session, the fireside chat session, you know, if you are one of those 90%, you might have felt, well, you know, I don't know if he talked enough about us. Now, I did, I did mention it. I did say, you know, there are loads of people who use drugs and, and, you know, there are some people who would argue that that's a human rights issue and that they should be entitled to. And actually on Sunday morning, I watched the live stream of all of the sessions on Sunday and one of the speakers that was there was speaking about human rights and they were speaking about how prohibition uh, can be a human rights violation for people who do want yeah. to use drugs, mm-hmm. you know. So, so Especially our- when you get into, if, if I mean, Jesus, some people who have severe dependencies on drugs and they get to a point whereby if, if they don't, if they don't have access to that drug, they could die. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, actually, you know, the only the only two you can die from from withdrawal. Alcohol and heroin? No, alcohol and benzodiazepines. Oh, God, I've heard that benzo withdrawal is absolutely awful. 
Well, it can kill you. So, so withdrawal from heroin is extremely physically and psychologically painful, but it mm-hmm. won't kill you. Now, you, I, I say and that. Benzos is like Xanax and stuff, isn't it? Yeah, those kinds of things. Yeah. Withdrawal, you have to, if you're using um, a lot of, of benzodiazepines, tablets, um, you have to do, it is absolutely advised to have a medically managed detox because if you wow. are using way more than you ought to be uh, and that is recommended for a daily amount, mm-hmm. if you withdraw suddenly, you can have a seizure and you can die. And it's the same with alcohol. If you withdraw, so those if you are, need to be protected. Oh, 100%. Yeah. So with alcohol as well, if you withdraw quite suddenly and you are, you know, physically dependent on alcohol, you can get a seizure and you can die. So, wow. so in terms of all of the drugs out there, they're the only two that can can kill you. And it's interesting. They're the, they're the two that are they're both legal. legal. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's interesting. But yeah, so that in the fireside chat, we tried, you know, all of us are really passionate about different aspects. So it was a short enough time. We had a, I think it was 50 minutes and there was four of us speaking. Um, I was very happy with it though. I mean, there were things that, you know, when you come home, you say, oh God, I wish I'd said this, but I, I have to forgive myself for that. I, I had a small amount of time, but what I felt was, because sometimes when I go to things and I haven't said said something, I say, oh God, why didn't I say that? I'm confident that somebody else will, of you course. know, so... I think it made it easier for me to to because uh, I want I would have liked to have spent more time talking about those people who who have a positive experience of drugs. And um, of course, that's not what I do, because that's the other thing is when you're you're talking about psychology and psychiatry and medicine, when you hear us talking about drug yeah. use and you'll hear a lot of people on the media, you know, over the next few months as well, talking about the, the harm associated with dro- yeah. drug use. They are only seeing the 10%. I mean, if you're sitting at home and, and you're using drugs and you're happy with your drug use and, and you feel like it's not harming you or anybody else, you're not going down to the doctor. You're not going to the solid yeah. psychologist or the psychiatrist. No one knows about you. No, no one knows about you. And like, the, like people, let's just take cannabis as an example. The adult, the professional adults of which there's fucking loads who have a joint and love it and get on with their lives they're not roaring and shouting about it. You don't hear about it. The other thing, the most, for me, because you know I'm all about social exclusion and poverty. Mm-hmm. That's my my gig, right? So the, the, the slide that actually stood out to me the most was in a presentation from two wonderful ladies from the HRB, the Health Research Board. And they had presented the latest data in relation to drug use and alcohol use in Ireland. And what was, you know, amazing was there is exactly the same prevalence of drug use across every socioeconomic group. There's no difference. So so poor people in, are in not different using countries? in Ireland. So in pe- Ireland, okay. People in, in areas of economic deprivation are not using more drugs and alcohol than people who are very wealthy. We're wow. all, all socioeconomic groups are all using the same amount. Wow. But the people who live in areas uh, of socioeconomic deprivation are experiencing more drug related harm. Wow. Like if you, so if you live in an area that is is considered to be a poor and how they measured it actually was not necessarily by area but actually on your if you were under 18 your parents socioeconomic 
mm-hmm. bracket or if you're over 18 in your own socioeconomic. So what they found was if you were in the poor category, you were much more likely to be diagnosed with this, a cannabis use disorder or you're much more likely to experience drug-related intimidation. Of course. So there, yeah, so, so I just looked at it and I thought... Well, Have you any opinions on that? What, why yes, would someone who's poorer... <laughs> what? Like the, I know, I want to know that. But why would a person who is 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 suffering with say uh, poverty? Why are they more likely to experience the negative effects of cannabis on their brain? But is are they experiencing more negative effects of cannabis on their or brain, or is it something else? So that's the question. So for me, it's about the relationship, and you've spoken about this about the relationship with the substance and what it does. So I mean, if if I go home this evening, and I won't be just in case anybody thinks I am. I will be standing at a soccer pitch with one of the children, but mm-hmm. and I'll be going to bed early because I have to be up early in the morning. But um, if I decided I was going to go home this evening and I was going to consume cannabis, which I, I, I won't be because it's mm-hmm. not something you're supposed to do in this country. But if I did decide to do that, why would I be doing it? So I might say, you know, oh, I was on Blind Boy. Well done, me. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go home now. and I'm going to have a beer and I might have a smoke or a cannabis cookie or whatever, and I'm going and to feel chill. good about your accomplishments and have it as a little yeah. reward for yes. your happy life. If I go home this evening and one of the children says, I need 10 euros for photocopying in school tomorrow, and I don't have it, and you have the shame of poverty and the stress of not being able to meet my children's needs, and I decide that I'm going to consume cannabis. I'm using it and I need it for an entirely different reason. Wow. So if if cannabis was the problem, why is it not having an equal impact across all communities? Why is money the buffer? Why is money the thing that stops you developing cannabis use disorder? So if you went back and you said, oh, the only other thing that somebody could come along and say is, oh, Poor people are just not good enough. That's why they become addicted. And that's not true because there's mm-hmm. absolutely no evidence to support um, that I am genetically different than anybody else. Or, yeah. You know, so so we have to stop talking about drugs in isolation. You and cannot talk other, about drugs without talking about somebody's social context. Another uh, point as well, just there on cannabis. So like I'm going to Canada next week to gig where it's completely legal right 100% legal and I'm going to walk into a dispensary where it's like walking into a wine shop and I'm going to get a joint and I'm going to smoke it and I've done that before in countries where it is legal and I've always had a wonderful experience with it and I've often wondered how much of that is because I'm like this is just like a glass of wine here I'm not going to get arrested I'm doing nothing wrong I'm not a criminal I know that what the person has given me in this lovely shop is exactly what they said they were going to give me. And it's a completely different experience to when I might have done it illegally here or I don't know what I'm getting or I'm afraid of feeling like a criminal, afraid of of getting caught smoking a joint and then you have a completely different experience. Yeah, so... Like... And we've talked about drug-related harm there, and you're talking about going to Canada. So one of the things I did bring up in the fireside chat was when we talk about drug-related harm, we often talk about it from a medical or psychological perspective. 
Um, but another drug-related harm is criminalization. Yeah. So, you know, if you get a criminal record as a result of your drug use, that is also a drug-related harm because it impacts on your ability to have all of the opportunities. So, for example, yeah. if you... Well, I w- I if I'd have gotten caught years ago, I wouldn't be going to Canada now. I was just going to say you wouldn't be going to Canada. So so yeah. your career would be very limited, you know. I remember it over the recession when I was in my early 20s and every single person I knew was emigrating to Canada or Australia. The ones that didn't were the ones who got caught dealing when they were 17 or 18. And the ones that got dealing got caught dealing when they were 17 or 18 were also the ones who were from the poorer backgrounds where when they got caught, the judge didn't say, ah, they come from a good family. They got a sentence and then they couldn't emigrate. Or also, I mean, if you're 17 and you have money and your buddy who's 17 doesn't have money and you both want to consume cannabis, one of you is going to have to, one of you might have the ability to pay for it themselves and the other one's going to have to come up with a way to to pay for it. So, um, but it was, you know, that's one of the things we did discuss was about not having a narrow view of drug-related harm, that criminalization is also a harm. And, you know, I was really disappointed in 2022. I thought we would have had the, the drugs, the Citizens Assembly on Drugs last year. Mm-hmm. And uh, Lynn Wan was pushing really hard for it. And the they had one in relation to the Lord Mayor in Dublin first. And I remember thinking, oh, gives a shit about the Lord Mayor in Dublin. They had Don't a Citizens be- Assembly about whether there should be a Lord Mayor in Dublin. Directly elected Lord Mayor. Oh, for the love of fuck. But I am um, like, look, blind boy, people in Dublin might care about that. So let's. OK, yeah, yeah, fair enough. Right? We got but one I, down in Limerick. We got it. We got a directly elected mayor in Limerick. I, I didn't care. I honestly didn't care because I just thought, Jesus Christ, there are people who are. There's more important things. It, well, for me, this was for me, drugs, drugs was more important. And I remember watching Lynn Ruan. She was speaking in the Senate and uh, she was really trying to push for, for the, the, this one to be to be happening sooner. And she got quite emotional. I was watching and I started crying as well. And I thought, you know, there are communities out there and people out there where this isn't just a, a citizen's assembly. This is their all day, every day and the harm that's come from it. And, and the Psychological Society of Ireland in 2022, um, the president at the time, Vincent McDarby, issued a statement and it was quite a strong statement for, for you know, the, the Psychological Society of Ireland, which many people maybe perhaps considered to be quite a conservative group. Um, I think we are, I think we're all really cool, but other people might think we're very conservative. So, you know, Vincent came out and he's, you know, he called really strongly and he said, you need to do this and you need to do it really quickly. And the Psychological Society of Ireland took the position that they do not believe that people who use drugs should be criminalised because when you have a criminal conviction, it can cause, it has the potential to cause a lifelong stigma. And I'm mm-hmm. quoting the Psychological Society of Ireland. And then it creates exclusion from employment and other opportunities. Yeah. So yeah. that, I guess, was one of the things I was worried about is, are we going to be just focusing on the 10% where it's problematic use? And then within that, are we just going to be focusing on, you know, the medical, psychological piece um, and I felt like all of that was addressed in the first weekend. I mean, in, in, in as much as it could be, it was said, this is the introduction to the stuff, lads. Mm-hmm. There's going to be all of these other sessions and you will have an opportunity to learn more about all of these things. And what the, I thought was beautiful about it is that it has, 
And I was talking to somebody about this at the weekend and they were saying, and they said to me, so are you saying they're kind of making it up as they go along because there's no invited speakers? And I said, no, that is not an accurate way to describe this. They could not, like, they could not decide on the programme until the citizens had all met together in one room because they are the ones who, who get to input into the programme mm-hmm. with advice from these other committees that have been set up. So, are you excited? Me? Yeah. I mean, I'm very excited. I I have, I just have a, such a cynicism, there's a cynicism in me about the Irish political class. I am excited about this assembly. What I'm wary of is, will the outcomes of this assembly actually lead to real change? Will the people in power, do they have to listen to this, Sharon? That, that's what I want to know. Let's okay, just that's say, the only question. Jesus, you should have asked somebody else to come on because it's the only question I don't 100%. I know, I, I know that like that I, was Is asked. it just that it, it's advisory? I think this is really just that it's advisory. The government could probably still turn around. Like, if the outcome of this was, do you know what? Let's do it like Portugal. Let's fucking legalise everything. Like, did well, the they government didn't legalise it. They, they decriminalised it. Or decriminalised it, sorry. Yeah. Like, if that was the outcome of this this Citizens' Assembly, I don't know are the government going to go, okay, let's do this, Democrat. I, I don't know. Well, you see, I suppose, look, the other way of looking at it, because I don't know the answer to that, but I can tell you if I was a politician and I was looking at this, um, one of the things that happened with the other issues, which were quite hot potato issues, abortion, same-sex yeah. marriage, and a view that Ireland is a very conservative country, yeah. So let's be careful about what we're seeing, what what you know, what flag we put our, our our mast on. So, I mean, if it comes back that you have this group of people, and I'm not going to preempt what people are going to end up deciding, you know, but but if you if I was a politician and I saw all of these recommendations and I realised this is this is representative of what the public believe, yeah. I would attach myself to it. It would be the sensible thing to do. Because otherwise you're going against and and often actually. Yeah, that looks bad. We often actually, and this happened with the others, people operate a lot in silos and we think, you know, we're, we hang around with our own groups and we think, oh, we're really cool, but everyone else is not. And what you found from the other things is actually there's a whole load of people out there who are interested in listening to, to research, to evidence, to lived experience perspectives. Mm-hmm. Um, and possibly, I think because of COVID, we've become even more siloed. And I think that that perhaps me, made me more anxious as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I sat there and I, you know, I observed uh, for the whole day and I did, obs- I did watch it online on the second day. I planned to watch all of these online. Um, and, uh, and I thought, you know, I feel really, I feel really hopeful here and, and whatever the recommendations will be, it will be really difficult to ignore them, I think. What I'd love to know is, what do you want, aside from the Citizens' Assembly, right? If you had a magic wand, what? how would you, within your experience, like to see drugs in Ireland and how they're legislated? I want to see policy that's informed by evidence. And, and the evidence is, is that criminalising people causes harm. Mm-hmm. So I want to see decriminalization of of all drugs for possession. Um, 
then there's the legalization thing. And I we spoke about this in 2020, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, or whenever it was. And at the time, there were states that were just, you know, and I'm saying, look, blind boy, I don't know because the research is, is you know, this is kind of new. So I've been watching it. and I, I In America, like this, the legal states in America? Yeah. The legal states. So when we spoke about it in 2020, you asked me, did I have a position? And I said, I don't know yet. So I was looking at that and I've been measuring that. And you asked me my position in 2020 and I said, I don't know because I think the research is not up to date enough. And and actually in 2023, and I looked last night and in 2023, um, the studies that have come out so far this year, it's a little bit mixed, actually. Um, Go on, tell us. So in some states, so so one of the big things is is that when you legalize cannabis use, there is a bit of an increase, right? So that's the novelty factor. Yeah. I imagine if if that happened here as well, people would say, "Oh my God, I don't have to go to Amsterdam and want to go down the road," and then yeah. they might do it for a couple of weeks and say, "Okay, I'm bored with that now. I'm going back to you know sea swimming or whatever it is they do." Um, so you have that kind of initial spike, and then it, it, it starts to soften off again. One of the things, so often then when people are presenting the research, they say, oh, look, cannabis use has increased, particularly in young people. This is really mm-hmm. scary. But actually, some of the studies I've been following, and I, I looked at one yesterday, which looked at long, a longitudinal look at at, uh, at cannabis use as it was being legalized in different states. And yes, in young people, cannabis use did increase. Mm-hmm. But do you know what decreased? Go on. Alcohol use. Okay. So then you'd say to yourself, right, is this a good or a bad thing, right? Yeah. So if you look at um, Professor David Knott in in, in uh, the UK when he was, mm-hmm. I think it was King's College London, and he had been... A very unfortunate the, name for an advocate for cannabis. Yes. <laughs> well, he'd been asked uh, to, to look at the classification for drugs. So, so alcohol is much more harmful than cannabis. So then you might yeah. say, okay, well, if they're going to do something, maybe cannabis is better than alcohol. But then you will have people who will say they should do nothing, right? Nothing. You shouldn't do any of it. It's really bad for you. And that is true. When you drink alcohol, it is is carcinogenic. Yeah. It's linked with cancer. Uh, When you drink alcohol, if you drink it a lot, it might make you do something to hurt yourself or hurt Mm -hmm. other people, or you might have an accident or an injury. Um, If you smoke cannabis, smoking is bad for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, so presumably if you're smoking cannabis, you're adding tobacco to it and things like that, Mm -hmm. which is also bad. Tobacco is also bad for you. I'm going to ask you another question. And this again is based again, your opinion, really your opinion, because you're a psychologist and you work in trauma. Like, would you like to see you're, you're familiar with the work that's happening around the world at the moment with the use of psilocybin or MDMA in therapies specifically with trauma, mm-hmm. would you like to see that happen in Ireland and to, for people to have access to that opinion? There are already people in Ireland doing it. But not legally. No, I know. So, And I have heard them speak in public about their experience of it. Uh, I would prefer people to be safe. Yeah. So if, and I know... You've had um, Paul Zelinski. Paul Ignitsky, yeah. And now he's doing it clinically. But I know people in Ireland who go off to a retreat and do a mushroom retreat. I know. It's like, who's the person? This person's a shaman. Who are they? (laughs) Yeah. And 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 that's for me, 
that's why I wouldn't do it because I'm like this is just a lad called Niall with dreadlocks sorry Niall but I'd prefer if I could see some training here you know what I mean well, and and we had a here in applied psychology in UCC we had a really interesting guest on who is looking at um, at the use of this as well in the state so they had worked with a group of of men who 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 developed HIV AIDS at a time mm. when that was a a fatal diagnosis there was no yeah. treatment here and you hugely know hugely stigmatized and hugely stigmatized and there was a huge amount of trauma associated yeah. with that because a lot of them died mm-hmm. um so of the people then who who survived um living through that stigmatization and the fear of death and you know all of that thing was what they had found was this there was this group who who was severely traumatized so so they did a study with them and um he came and he presented that here Joshua Willie is his name and um it was really interesting so, so for the people who had participated in the study, he, he's based in the University of California and uh, he directs the psychedelic research program there. Yeah. So, so what they had found was that um, when they, the, the people used the psychedelics, that the experience was that they, it was, it, it was emotional and some of that emotion was negative because yeah. they, it was bringing up, you know, kind of trauma experiences but then that afterwards um that they felt better so okay. so you know the, and then those people are being followed up so so what you're saying you I know you're saying to me Sharon, that's such a political answer you're not getting to the point so i am going to get to the point and the point is is that if you come back to me in two or three years time and you say we have this body of data now Sharon, that shows that this particular thing is an effective treatment for people who have experienced chronic trauma who where nothing else has worked or or actually this is just what they want to do and we can do this and say that they won't experience harm and we can do it in a really safe way if you're asking me would i support that absolutely i get you you don't form opinions unless you have data and evidence i'm a researcher yeah yeah i can't make a cake because i'm going on vibes you know <laughs> no I'm going on vibes I'm going this looks great loads of people are but I, I don't have like you're going that's fantastic blind boy but I want to see some data I want to see some studies I do because there are things in the past that perhaps I've gotten excited about and then yeah. when I've gone looking a bit further I've gone oh I don't know now because 50% of the people who did that and I'm not talking about drug you know drug research but other things 50% of the people who did this said it was amazing and 50% ended up with a really adverse experience. And then I would say, hmm, how do we, how do we make that safer for everybody? Cause it can't be that 50, 50, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, and not yet, because when you're a researcher, you just end up, that's where your head works. So I, I could meet you on the street and you could say, you know, uh, isn't that a lovely view? And I would yeah. say, not because I'm a psychologist and people might think I might say it because I'm a psychologist and I'll say, why? <laughs> yes. Why is it a lovely view? Not necessarily. And people will say, oh, because you're a psychologist, you always overthink things. And it's not actually, it's because of a researcher. Um, you can go to a researcher anywhere in a university and say that, and they'll go, why? <laughs> what specifically? Um, mm-hmm. So that's what I'm always thinking about is, 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 is show me the data and how long has it gone on for? And, and with the data, who is presenting it? Yes. Who is funding it? 
Uh, I can read a study and say, uh, I, I think sometimes actually when I read some of the cannabis ones, I do get a bit frustrated when they talk about... Um, That's what I want to ask you about because I have seen... Now, I can't remember the exact association or the names, right? But in the Irish media in the past three years, I've seen groups of, I think they're Irish doctors. I don't know, is it psychiatrists? I think they might be Irish doctors. And they have come out and said, cannabis is dangerous and it creates psychosis. And they're very vocal about this. And I've always wondered, like, what's their deal? You see, you know who I'm talking about, aren't you? I do know who you're talking about, yeah. So there's lots of different groups in Ireland who advocate for different positions, and I know the group that you're talking about there. So you you are right. They are people who are, are doctors and psychiatrists. So so you have to remember that your truth and their truth is different. So mm-hmm. their experience of people who use drugs are the people who come to them in difficulty. Um, yes. That's the you know. So if I'm working in an A and E on a Saturday night. Okay. Um, you know, my experience and my truth of drug use is not going to be the same as yours. So there is that. And if you have a different truth and you're listening to, to other people's experiences of, of what do they see and, and what do they perceive, then I guess you could get annoyed. But that's why I like the, the Citizens' Assembly is because everybody will get their truth spoken. And then the mm-hmm. citizens will have to weigh up all of those different perspectives and decide, you know, what's what's the deal here. So, so there are. So, people- are you saying that maybe maybe those those doctors are? Because even my own doctor, Sharon, my own doctor, when I was doing a checkup, asked me, "Do you smoke?" And I'm like, "No, I don't." And then I said, "I'd I'd have a joint now and again," and he straight up said to me. Don't go near that cannabis stuff that that will have you in severe mental distress. And he was really strong about it. Like, and are you saying that these doctors, maybe they are seeing a lot of people presenting with cannabis psychosis or they're seeing things that happen to people like this because of cannabis. And this is coloring their their view and they're not maybe looking at the data the way that you would as a researcher. Well, you know, it's there all day, every day. And I mean, I have yeah. worked, I worked in, in, in the community in an addiction service. Nobody came in to us and said, hi, Sharon, I'd like an appointment because I uh, smoke cannabis and it's great crack. Can we chat about it? Nobody yeah. ever came to me with that. Because we, let's be honest, people, there are people in the country and like they smoke cannabis. Like anytime I mention it online, someone will come to me and say, that's great, Blind Boy, that you like cannabis. However, my brother's fucked. And my brother smoked joints and now he's not the same. And that's anecdotally a thing that I do see. Yeah. But it's and very... I don't just, want to ignore it, but I'd love no. to know more about it. Well, and what no. you said earlier is really interesting, that it tends to present with people who have more uh, socioeconomic challenges. Yeah. So they experience the most harm. So, so you're going to have people who have different experiences. So the... 90% of people who use drugs, the, the group of people who, who are kind of using drugs the most actually is students. So, mm-hmm. um, the, and a lot of them do that during college and then they go away and they, they get a mortgage and then that's the end of all of that. So, mm-hmm. um, but then you do have this group who experience very significant harm, but they are this, they are that 10% of people who use drugs. But, but as I said, if you work in a service, 
you don't see the 90%. So you, your, your view of drugs is that this is terrible. And why in the name of Jesus would anybody want to do this? Yeah, because you're seeing, like even, I'm getting to the age now where I'm seeing lads who I knew when I was, when I was a kid and now they're street drinkers, if you know Mm -hmm. what I mean. Mm-hmm. They're they're on the streets. They don't have a home, and they're drinking the can of cider all day long. And these are, I'm like, I remember him when he was a kid. Every single one of those lads had a very, very, very tough childhood. Mm-hmm. N- none of them were like me, where they had opportunity opportunities and a loving family. These were all lads who, since I knew them, had it fucking tough. But I love cans as well. I love drinking cans. I love having a bit of wine. But I'm not out on the street. You know what I mean? Because it's... You, when you drink or you, you when you go to Canada and you smoke that joint, you're doing it because it's a treat or a reward. It's you're a reward. You're not doing it because you are experiencing such emotional pain that you cannot survive in your own mm-hmm. head and you cannot function without it. Because I had the, I had the privilege of, of I can emotionally regulate mm-hmm. because from a very young age I knew that I was loved and I never had to doubt it. And it's not even just, you know, that people are in, it's poverty, the stress of poverty. There's loads of different mm-hmm. things. And, and when we talk about trauma, actually, sometimes people view trauma as, as interpersonal, as something that somebody does to another person. Mm-hmm. And actually, there are lots of different types of traumas. So racism, community trauma, community and racism, discrimination, poverty, mm-hmm. a medical illness, a medical injury. In relation to the cannabis and psychosis, so in relation to psychosis in general, actually, one of the biggest predictors for psychosis is trauma. Now, not wow. everybody who has psychosis has experienced trauma. But we know that that is one of the biggest things that causes it. Um, and then if you think about where somebody says drug-induced psychosis. So I've done research with people who are experiencing homelessness, some of whom who have been uh, diagnosed with drug-induced psychosis. And when I have spoken to them, they have used drugs a lot, but they have also experienced a lot of trauma in childhood. So how do I know which one of these? I can't separate them out now. That was Gabor Mate's finding. That's what changed Gabor Mate when he, as a doctor, was on the streets of Vancouver dealing with people with addiction. And then he went... But every single person with addiction here also has a quite a bit of trauma too. Mm. Mm. Not everybody in addiction has experienced trauma, but certainly a huge amount of people. Oh, a huge have. amount, of course. Yeah, a huge yeah. amount. And it's the same with psychosis. So, and I remember, you know, sometimes when you talk to people, particularly people who've ex- who are, are, are not everybody who's who's homeless has experienced trauma either, because of course the profile of homelessness has changed mm-hmm. so much in Ireland. Of course, but like yeah. if you looked at, you know, 20 years ago, people who were experiencing homelessness would have come from terrible, adver- you know, adverse mm-hmm. experiences. Not, you know, that just, oh, sometimes oh, their, their parents didn't care about them. It's much more complicated than that. And mm-hmm. um, and then they'd say, you know, I'm really struggling with the mental health kind of angle because when I go in, all they want to do is talk about my drugs and alcohol and nobody wants to talk about and they'll name something and I'm not going to because... Um, People can imagine what it is, but it's horrendous, awful of course, things that, yeah. that, that the worst thing that somebody could do to harm you as a child. And yeah. they're like, I can't get somebody to talk to me about this because they keep going on about the drugs and alcohol. 
But you'll oh. find that, that that awful thing that happened to them happened when they were six or seven. And when did you start using drugs? When I was 12. Is this the dual diagnosis thing as well, yeah. Sean? Is this getting into that territory? Yeah. Whereby if you have a mental health issue, but then you also have addiction, access to services becomes almost a catch-22. Oh, yeah. So, so if you're you know, going to mental health services and you're using a lot of drugs and alcohol, you'll be sent to addiction services. And if you go to addiction services and your mental health is really quite chronic and complex, then they would be very concerned about that and they might want you to go back to mental health. So I think but we then spoke, mental health won't take you if there's a smell of drink off you. Yeah. So, you know, I spoke, uh, I think we spoke about this before because I did a project on on the impact of drug-related deaths on families and, and my PhD mm-hmm. student who's coming towards the end of his PhD, has followed up on that work and looked at it in much greater detail with a number of different groups. And, uh, and and actually, one of the things that was common when you were talking to families was just not being able to get the right service. Actually, I would mm-hmm. ask everybody. So so Derek Quigley uh, was a beautiful young woman who, yeah. who, who had mental health difficulties and... Um, she also had substance dependence and she died Mm -hmm. and she died six years ago Mm -hmm. and her death is considered a drug-related death and her mother Aileen Malone wrote an article in in Hot Press a couple of weeks ago Yeah, but I also heard her on on a a radio show on on Matt Cooper yesterday she did an interview with Matt Cooper and I listened back to it last night and uh, I think everybody should listen to it Mm-hmm. So she talks about the fact that her daughter, you know, would have had, a, you know, a bit of anxiety and things like that, mental health, you know, not kind of chronic mental health, but then started mm-hmm. using drugs and, and whatever that did for her, it worked. And then yeah. her drug use became, became really, you know, dangerous for her and it caused her mm-hmm. a lot of problems and, and, and she died. And Aileen has you know, lost her beautiful daughter, beautiful, mm-hmm. talented young woman who wrote poetry and was incredibly creative. And she's deeply invested in this in a way that I can never be. And I, you know, mm-hmm. touch wood, I won't be because this happens to lots of families. Yeah. And I think, you know, she spoke about what she, what was needed for her beautiful daughter and what it was was she yeah. did not get the right service at the right time um, too many closed doors and then because drug use was criminalised um, she felt that that made it a little bit more unsafe um, yeah. for her daughter I really you know people should listen to that 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 interview I, I found it I, I've heard Aileen speak before in different places but there was something about Last night, I don't know, maybe it's because it's on the back of the Citizens' Assembly and I'm feeling quite emotional about that process mm-hmm. and really wanting it to be successful. And there was something last night that really I, I I sat there for a long time afterwards thinking about her words, you know. The I'm going to ask you one last question, Sharon, and this is... So we've spoken about drugs, right? But also the other impact of drugs is, is the policy around drugs, mm. the war on drugs. What damage have you seen the war on drugs do in, in Ireland in, in in your work? The war on drugs disproportionately impacts uh, socially excluded groups. Mm-hmm. So 
the war on drugs, and I'm not, I haven't coined this phrase, somebody else says, is a war on, on the poor and a war on, on, on working class and a war. If you go to America, the war on drugs is primarily a war against black people. Yeah. Um, in Ireland, it's a war, a war against people in poverty. So there are people who use drugs and there are people who get caught. Yeah. And there are people who have social capital and they will be able to, you know, undo some of the damage of that by yeah. having access to the financial means to pay people to help them and all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then you will have people who who won't and they are more likely to be criminalized. And and Vicky Conway, um, who who was an amazing lecturer and researcher in the in the law in law in, in Ireland and, and and Vicky died. Um but she's she's a voice actually that I think will be missing because uh her area of expertise was a was a you know really around how we police different groups of people and and not just policing is yeah. in you know policing on the street but but actually the policing in terms of criminal justice interventions and consequences in court. Um and there are people who who experience more harms than others. It's not equally distributed yeah. harm from from the criminal justice system, you know. Well, that's look. I remember growing up, certain lads would get caught with a little bit of hash or whatever, and if they came from what we call in Ireland a good family, you hear that a lot at a lot, at a lot of sentencings or, or court hearings. They're from a good family, and this person who got caught with a bit of hash gets off with a caution. But then the person who didn't come from a good family or came from an area that was stigmatised, they got the sentence. It's I guess it's about what you see in terms of potential. So, you know, if if a young lad is in front of you and he's doing really well and he's says after you know, college, after college, I'm going to be a contributing member of society. Um, so Jesus, I don't want to you know damage that any further. And then you have some yeah. young person who, you know, this isn't their their first rodeo and they might have been in a couple of weeks ago for, you know, spraying graffiti on something else. And you're like, no, I'm done with this, lad. Um, So there is that. So the people who are already experiencing difficulty experience more and more difficulty, which makes it harder then to get out of that cycle. But I do think that that's changing. You know, I really do think it's changing because people are talking about the social determinants of health. So poverty as a, a consequence for for all sorts of challenges. I mean, I've in the last couple of years, I've spoken at the district court judges conference, the circuit court judges conference. I've spoken to the Bar of Ireland. I've spoken to the DPP about trauma, its relationship with addiction and its relationship with mental health. Um, if you told me 20 years ago that, you know, all of these organisations and various different organisations in Ireland would be interested in anything psychology had to say because we're often quite separated as disciplines. And then yeah. when we are, we think it's because people don't care. And it's actually because we're just all really busy sometimes and we don't talk to each other enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think actually one of the things that happened with one of the positives of COVID was the fact that I was certainly invited to more interdisciplinary things. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I connect- of Zoom. Because Zoom, I was at things that I would never normally be at. I've I've connected with with disciplines and groups of people I wouldn't normally connect with, and and I've learned a lot. Um, 
And I have shared some of my research with people as well. And, you know, it's just really great for people to say, like, when you're studying law, for example, there's a lot to learn from the legal perspective. And and how do you decide what, what ends up on the curriculum? And, and if there's nobody working there who's from psychology or mental health or, or wherever, how do you even know that it's important because nobody has ever told you it's not your lane? So because we had all of these different conversations going on, there's people saying, God, this is really important. And I've learned things that are really important for me to know that I I, I didn't know. So mm-hmm. I think I'm I'm kind of I'm kind of softening a bit actually uh, in my old age, blind boy. Um and I'm kind of saying maybe I was too quick to assume that people don't care. And rather than, and then, oh, look, there are people who don't care. I know that. I meet them. Of course, yeah. But but there are also these, these people who I would have thought, oh, why don't they care about this? It's they not that they the don't care. It's because nobody ever gave them the information. So okay. I'm feeling I'm feeling quite positive about a lot of things. And you know that that's a big deal for me because I'm a total, I'm like, do I, have you ever met anyone who complains as much as I do? So for <laughs> me to tell you that I, like, for me to tell you that I'm feeling really positive about a lot of things is a big deal. Like my, yeah. like my you know, my psychologist regularly ghosts me, like in reality, because I think I depress him and he needs a break for a while and then he, he comes back again. So I, I can't wait to see him again because I'm going to be like, I'm actually really positive. And then he might, ha- you know, he might hang in there with me. But but I am quite a, because I get tired. I've, I've, I've often been burnt out, really burnt yeah. out by... I seeing the same things over and over again and nothing changing and I get really mad. I get really, really mad. All you have to do this is, is a bit of light at the end of the tunnel here. 100%. And actually, you know, last year I was very angry. Jesus, yeah. I was very angry. Somebody should have taken, somebody should have re- t- done me a favour and closed my Twitter account. Um, <laughs> and I know you follow me on Twitter. I assume you, you muted me because I was out of control. I was so mad. I was so <laughs> mad, right? Everyone was a bit mad on Twitter over fucking COVID though. Come here, I was was so angry because because people who had already been socially excluded were becoming more and more socially excluded. And then people were burnt out from COVID. And I was like, lads, why does nobody give a shit about people anymore? And then the people who used to care are absolutely burnt out and they don't give a shit anymore either. So now I'm just getting really mad. And... But that's the thing I found with COVID, Sharon, and we're only all kind of getting out of it now is... I'm, yeah... I always look at COVID from the grief, a grief perspective. And one of the things with grief, especially if it's someone close to you who dies, mm. like for me, it was my father. One of the hardest things about that is the people around me, my brothers, my sister, my ma, I can't go to them for support because that the person is after dying on them too. And COVID is a bit like that. Mm. Who the fuck do you talk to about COVID? Who do you say to God, COVID was awful. That was terrible for me. Even when I'm with my therapist, I feel guilty saying, Jesus, that lockdown there for two years was awful for my mental health. Can I talk about how awful that was? That feels difficult to do because the fucking therapist had to do it as well. Yeah. So it, it that's real tough. And, and it burnt everybody out and everybody was burnt out. And how do you talk about a thing that, like I said it on a podcast a few weeks ago, if one person just one person had contracted this rare disease called COVID, only one person, and they had to stay inside their house for two years and they couldn't see their family. 
you'd be the most famous person in the world. The, the entire, you'd be on the news, you'd be on the Conan O'Brien show going, my God, and you had to stay inside for two years and you had to wear a mask and you had to distance, only you. But because it happened to everybody, we, we don't, we don't reflect on, actually that was fucking awful and quite traumatising. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like if you, if, I found, if I, if I even say, I experienced a bit of trauma from COVID, people get angry. You didn't have it as hard as me. Yeah. Real anger comes up, which I know is 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 trauma, but fuck me. I I think for me as well, and this is actually does link in with the citizens' assembly as well, is that you can have a different way. Like one of the things that struck me, so if if I take the fireside chat and you ask me how did I feel at the start, and I said to you, I felt really nervous. Right. Mm -hmm. And there was loads of people presenting different presentations during the day. And I asked people, I said, how do you feel about being here? You know, Citizens Assembly on Drugs has finally happened. And there were people who said, I feel really, you know, really nervous. And like there's a weight. The word weight was used a lot. Like there's a weight on me. And that's the thing is, depending on who you are, where you're from or the work that you've done. The issue will have a different weight. So I mm-hmm. be really mad. I might get really angry about something, and somebody will say, "Jesus, Sharon Lambert is a dose, right?" Yeah. But it's because I'm not just thinking about policy or statistics. These are people, and I know them, um, mm-hmm. or I've worked with them, or their family members, or whatever. So, so one of the things I think for a long time is I get really annoyed at how slow progress is. Yeah. And people will often say to me, look, you know, change takes time, Sharon. And I go, we don't have time. People are dying. People die. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't a joke. This isn't about time. But but if I if I keep like that, I'm I'm going to spiral out of, I don't know, all sorts of, course. of troubles. So then you have to keep your own self-care and your own yeah. emotional boundaries and your own capacity to, to emotionally regulate. What I The analogy I often use for shit like this too is, you know, when you're on an airplane and you look at those... What that? What would? What do you do if there's an emergency on an airplane, and the instruction says, "Put your own mask on first, mm. and once you have your own mask on, then you help the person beside you or yeah. the child." That's and you have to fucking look after your own boundaries and your own mental health because if you going, don't, you're you're of no use to other people. Yeah, you're not of any use to your community. And we're going to see this with as the citizens' assembly progresses as well. There were an awful lot of people who were invested in this process for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And there are some people who are living this all day, every day. And mm-hmm. they're going to be, you know, they're going to say, you're telling me that this is going to go on until October. And then how mm-hmm. long will it take to write up this and that? And they will be really annoyed. And I totally get that because the experience of, of or the, the, the consequences of drug policy or drug treatment or drug in terms of the legal side of it. So all of those things impact on people in different ways and they bring up different responses. And I think that's why, you know, during COVID, I was getting really angry because there were groups of people who I would feel very close to who who were disproportionately impacted because they are excluded and they were becoming more excluded. And I got really angry about that. But Mm -hmm. When I went 
two things have happened that have have started to make me feel feel more positive. And one of those is the Citizens Assembly. And the other thing is, is because I have come out of COVID and I am interacting with other people from who are not like me and who are from different disciplines or whatever. And I'm going, actually, there's real, there's actually loads of really nice people. And and yeah. I haven't seen that, that for a while. So I have I have become much more I have become much more positive. I'm, you know, I don't want to burn everything to the ground now. There are things that I think should be burned <laughs> to the ground and should be started again. But I, like before, it was kind of literally like, you know, all of it, get rid of all of it. But no, I can see the space now and I, I feel more tolerant about about listening to other people's different views and things. So so overall, I'm still going to be moany, right? I'm not making any massive promises on that end. Uh, I think it's just part of my nature to be a little bit of a dose. But um, I care, like I... I I'm going to tell you a sad story and, and then we want, we have to say something happy because this is really sad. So, but I want to, to give you an idea of the kinds of things that, that, that make me angry. So mm-hmm. maybe six weeks ago I was in Dublin and I was at a thing and I wanted to get the train home at 8.30. Yeah. And the last train to Cork is 9.30. Yeah. And I arrived at the train station at 8.31. So I'd missed the train mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, flipping hell, right? So I was standing at the door and I could see that there was a number of people who were experiencing homelessness outside the door. And I was just standing there and I was watching and there was a young man and and he was with two older people and, and it did feel like they were bullying him a little bit. And I was kind of standing there and going, how am I going to you know, manage this? Because... It, I can't put myself in, in, in danger and I don't know what's going on and, and, you know, how do I manage it? But anyway, they went away and, and he was there and he was very young. He was, you know, possibly in his early 20s and uh, he, I could see him walking over to people and I could see them turn their backs. And I think mm-hmm. that people have become desensitized to street homelessness because they're seeing yeah. it a lot. I thought, this is really bad. How can they turn their backs, you know? And I, I thought he's going to come over to me and he's going to ask me for money and I'm going to give it to him. And he'll eventually make his way over. And he came over to me and he said, can I can I use your phone? Mm-hmm. It's for a free phone number. And I said, oh, do you need to ring what I call the bedline? So that's where you yeah. ring this free phone number to get a bed for the night. And he said, oh, no, I've, I've already rang the one in Dublin. But you see, in Ireland, we have a center of interest policy. So in order to access homeless services, you have to be from that place. So... If, yeah. God forbid, blind boy, if you were homeless in Dublin tomorrow, you're not allowed to access the services because you're from Limerick. So you need to go back to oh, where you wow. came from. So he told me where he was from and I'm not going to disclose that. And I said, OK, let's ring them. But his next difficulty was how he was going to get to that county because he's barred from the train station. Oh, and my God. I said, look, let's ring them and see what we can do. So I Googled their free phone number and I was ringing them and there was, I couldn't get through. And then the time was ticking by. And I I had to get the 9.30 train because it is the last train of the night, right? So I said to him, I don't want you to think that I I don't care and that I'm just abandoning you here, but I, I, I have to get the half nine train. There isn't another one. I'm, I'm going to go and get you some money, um, you know, for a hostel for tonight. And I'm mm-hmm. going to, you know, give you some details with some people you can ring tomorrow. So I went in and I got some money and I came out and I gave it to him and he started to cry. Oh. And he said, I feel really bad. And I said, don't feel bad. And he said, no, he said, I, I feel really bad because I know I will spend the money on, on drugs. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I said, are you, are you, I said, are, you know, are you, are you able to, to not use? So if you stop using, does it cause, you know, physical and psychological pain? And he said, I can't, I'm addicted. And I said, okay. And I said, I understand that. So mm. I said, actually, I said, I'm giving you the money. And I said, what you choose to do with that, I said, is your, your business. I said, I'm giving you the money. And I said, if you go to a hostel, great. If you don't, you know, that's your choice. I didn't ask you what you were spending it on. And I'm not going to judge you. All I'm going to ask is for that you stay safe. You know, you stay really mm. safe. And I, I asked him to go to a particular place as well. And uh, he started crying again. And he said, you're the only person who's been kind to me in, in weeks yeah. And he kept stepping back from me as well. And I thought, God, why does he keep stepping back? Am I like invading his personal space or what am I? I was trying to think, what am I doing wrong here? You know? And I said, why do you keep stepping back? And he said, because I smell. And I said, you don't actually. I said, you oh, don't smell at all. And then he said, can I have a hug? And I said, of course you can. And the two of us stood there crying. And this isn't about, oh, Sharon, aren't you fucking great talking to? Yeah, yeah. Because you know, people put that stuff on Insta. I want course, people yeah. to know about this is who we have. This is who we have. These are our people, right? But what you've done there is you've, you've humanized. But wait till I tell you. You've, so You've humanized someone that people turned their backs to because yeah, they turned their the backs. And, and we hugged, we two of us stood there and we were hugging and we were crying because I just wanted to bring him home. And he was a beautiful young man. And um, I looked up at the town and I said, oh shit, I have to go. I'm really sorry. I never said, you know, I'm from a universe. I never said where I was from or anything, never mentioned anything. And I, I opened my purse and I lost my feckin' ticket, right? And I said, fuck's sake, I've lost my train ticket. And he shoved the money back into my hand. Mm-hmm. And I said, Jesus Christ, don't give me that. That's for you. And he said, but you've no money. Where, what? You've, you've no train ticket. And I said, look, I said, don't worry about it. I said, I can get another train ticket. And I could see that he was worrying, you know, and I said, look, I said, I work somewhere that are very understanding. And if I explain to them that I've lost my train ticket, they won't be crass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I won't get in trouble because, you know, I've lost my train ticket. And I said, don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. And I could see he was still worrying, you know, that I might be in trouble. So he said, I'll what I could do is he said, I could run in and if I jump the barrier, they'll chase me and then mm-hmm. you'll be able to go in through the barrier and they won't see. I know. And I said, that is just the kindest offer I have had in such a long time. And I yeah. said, but I, I said, I, you're over worrying about this now. Mm-hmm. And I said, um, I will not get in trouble if I have to buy another train ticket. And he said, I'm going to stand here. So to, he said, I'm not allowed in. So he said, I'm going to stand here and watch to make sure that you're safe. <laughs> Yeah, And I walked up through the barriers and I, I'm going to get upset again. But anyway, I walked up through the barriers and I turned around and I looked back and I could see him standing there and he was waving and he was crying and the tears were coming down his face. And he had nowhere to sleep and his his feet were bleeding because the shoes he were he was wearing were too small for him. His pants was falling down because the elastic was gone. Mm-hmm. And he was going to give me back the money that I had given him, even though he had nothing. He didn't even have a phone. And then he stood there to watch to make sure that I was going to be safe. And I don't know if he was safe that night because I don't know where he slept. Yeah. And I want people to know that when I'm angry about these things, it's because that's why. He's not any different than me. He's not any different Mm -hmm. than me. And uh, and I, I, I just find that really difficult to to witness. And I understand that people are getting tired of. I've seen street homelessness. It looks really chaotic. 
you know, people are angry and shouting and howling at the moon and doing all sorts of crazy things because they're really unwell. But behind every one of those people is a beautiful young man like him. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I, I'm upset now about that experience, but it's not the first. I mean, I have experiences like that. And I think why he, he's, he's, I meet people like him all of the time, beautiful human beings, incredibly kind, incredibly generous. You know, despite the fact that they have nothing, they will do something for you. Mm-hmm. And and I I hope that people will, you know, try not to get burnt out by homelessness because it could potentially get worse now in the next few months. Especially with the yeah the eviction the eviction ban. ban. So that when you see people on the street, you don't have to stop and help everybody, but that you know every one of those people is a, is a, is a is a human being who who is just like us and but. For me, I think the reason why I am so excited about the Citizens' Assembly on Drugs is because I witnessed 99 citizens in a room who are giving a huge amount of their time, huge amount of their personal time. They were engaged, they were insightful, they were careful, they were, you know, just amazing to to watch and you know some of them did ask questions where I would have had a different perspective but I could see that they were being deliberate in their question and and really thinking and I think it's the first time for quite a while that I felt this is just such an amazing experience and it's a truly democratic experience and it absolutely has the potential to change policy and and I feel really, really hopeful. I feel really, really hopeful. I'm, I will have periods of frustration because it will go slowly or I will hear mm-hmm. people who will say things that I won't agree with. But overall, I, I have never felt so positive about this space as I did. I could not sleep Saturday night. I was so excited and it's been an awful, I'm old. It's been an awful long time since I've been excited about anything. But that's fucking, that's fantastic, Sharon. Um, Marsta, yeah. actually, thank you so much for coming on, Sharon. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Sharon Lambert for that wonderful chat. I'll catch you all next week. God bless. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.